Okay, we're back. Let's see if this works. I can't hear me, but I'm assuming everything on my end looks like it's okay. So I have no idea if this is, you know, doing a thing. It's working now. Awesome. Thank you for your help. I really appreciate it. Um, I think I just need to replace the cable. It's just loose. It's fine. Deal with it later. All the same. I'm just going to pick up and do the intro one more time. I apologize. If you're listening to the podcast version of this in the future, uh, we had technical issues, but we got it sorted. It's all good. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, gardeners, salsa dancers, tango enthusiasts, anybody who dislikes snow, people who use the snow on their back steps as like an outdoor fridge for short-term beverage cooling, lovers of fine knitted woolen goods, anybody who's ever considered like leaving the frigid north for warmer climate. Anybody who's ever like sat there and not said, gosh, cold enough for you. And most importantly, the people who uh, know the value of, you know, stuff, the comrades. Hi, I'm John. This is John Helps You Write Better. Hi. And this is the writer's chat for uh, January. I was going to say October for some reason. January the 16th. It's just been one of those days, I guess where if you don't know what this is or what's going on, this is the writer's chat. This is a Q&A answering questions from all across uh, social media from all different comers and all different writers about all different kinds of stuff, as well as the, the questions asked by those lovely people here in chat today. Hello again, chat. Thanks for your tech support help before. Uh, yeah, I would not be able to do this without you. Thank you ever so much. Makes a huge difference. So uh, we're doing this minus, basically minus music. There's, I think it's an e, I'm using Ecamm as my software. I don't think it's cooperating or playing nicely with multiple channel recording. So we'll see how this goes. And if the mic conks out again, let me know. And we'll re-redo things. But for now, let's start answering some questions. Question number one. Is emergent storytelling possible if I've outlined my manuscript? Now, I think we should define emergent storytelling first and foremost. Emergent storytelling is the idea that the story, whatever it is, comes across or develops as you go. This is often interpreted as a kind of like pantsing. We're making it up as we go. It just sort of happens as we sort the pieces out. And that's not necessarily a wrong definition, but it is, um, well, it's, it's too abbreviated a definition because emergent storytelling is itself also the act of telling the story because it wasn't on the page before you wrote it down at all. There's a real, one of the real like cornerstone debates in the pantsing plotting bullshit war is that outlining is bad because it eliminates creativity. Because you need to know that you have the freedom to have anything happen. And somehow an outline restricts that or stops that. This is an overestimation of what an outline can do. Or it treats the outline more like a contract. Like I wrote it down, it has to be this way. Which it does not need to be. 
at all, ever. You can change your outline just as easily as you change your draft. You can choose to ignore it or skip it. That said, uh, you can outline a lot, a little. And I think one of the other problems here is that people's conception of what is an outline uh, is wrong, just wrong, just flat out wrong. They're looking at it in terms of like an outline has to look like it looked for school with Roman numerals and capital letters and lowercase a and, and little i and all that stuff. It can look like that. It's okay if it looks like that, but it doesn't have to look like that. Your outline can be a list of bullet points. It can be a numbered list. It can be just a, an un, you know, just a, just a note to yourself that just says, you know, start them here, take them here, go here, do this. That's fine. It can be a single post-it note reminder you tape to the side of the monitor that says, make sure there's a fight in the, in the field before the volcano blows up. That's just as valid an outline as the Roman numerals and capital letters that they teach you in school. Emergent storytelling is entirely, absolutely, 1,000% possible with an outline, without an outline. And it's not that emergent storytelling is somehow inherently better because it's more pure or less restrained or less boxed in by your bullshit. It's, it's just telling your story. You're always allowed to be creative. You can always change things. No one's going to know that you've deviated from your outline unless you tell them. The reader on the consumer end, after all the drafts and after all the editing and once you publish the thing, the reader's just going to assume that that's how you wanted the story from the beginning. So all this folder all about, oh, I've got to have an outline and it's got to be this, is, is for what purpose? It's part, I think, of that performative nonsense people make or do when they're a writer. Oh, look at me. I'm writing. Oh, look at me. I have an outline. I got to go on social media and talk about how hard it was and how my characters are this, that, or the other. And you don't need to do any of that. I, I think part of it we do for validation. I think part of it we do because we see everybody else doing it. And I think part of it wrongly is what's being kind of absorbed by this idea of, well, that's how you build an audience. You just get on social media and you, you dance like a little dancing monkey. And the next thing you know, people love you. And I just don't think that's accurate. I think when we focus on craft, I think when we focus on making decisions, I think when we give writers the confidence and the tools to do whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, I think you end up with better writers producing better work without the song and dance of trying to be like everybody else. So to answer the question, yes, absolutely. You can have emergent storytelling anytime you have a story to tell. And that's how we start today. Off we go to question two. My character is unnamed. How do I refer to them in a way that holds some mystery? Okay, first of all, bold choice not naming your character. It's not wrong. In fact, you never have to name your character. You can always use pronouns. You can always you know, write in first person, you can always build conversations and dialogue with your main character where you never really have to give them a name. It's, it's difficult. For sure it's difficult, but doable. Now, the interesting point here is that you've said you want to hold some mystery. And my question to you is, why does there have to be mystery? Because it, it, it's, it's not 
a typical thing you don't normally ask for. You know, I'm withholding my character's name so that there's some unknown commodity to it. It's 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 not that. It's more a matter of and more a function of I'm withholding my character's name because it is interesting to me. The mystery of it is not going to add to the commercial potential appeal. It's just a, an extra thing you're doing. You're not going to, it's, it's not that big a deal. It's a big deal to you because you're writing the story, but from a narrative point, naming or not naming the character when the name really isn't consequential, like, you know, we're going to, if we're using something allegorical or something, we not, we don't name the character because secretly the character is the devil or something. If, if it's not one of those one in a million things where it's it's intentional and and purposeful and the, the story is built around you know guessing the character's name or finding out the character's name if it's just a detail oh by the way my character doesn't have a name it it doesn't really matter and it's not going to suddenly start mattering to people in fact if the story is engaging and holding somebody's attention they're not going to stop and think twice that oh they haven't really named that character it's okay but you can refer to them using some combination of pronouns and sentence structure to where you never have to rely on the name to drive the story forward. This is going to be trickier, much trickier, if you're doing it in third person where third person is a very sort of proper noun and pronoun driven structure where we're always using nouns of some kind to organize information. To get around that, you probably want to use uh, some kind of identifying pronoun, whether that's a gendered pronoun or a non-gendered pronoun, but at least use something so that we can distinguish one character from the other. Name is just one of the ways we do it. You can also do it, you know, the same way they would do it in, in you know, Greek myth or Roman myth, where instead of saying, you know, Zeus, they, they would say something like, you know, the king of the gods or something. Could you also make up a fake name? Sure, you could make up a fake name. Absolutely, you could make up a fake name. But at the same time, we are now making a fake name for a fake character and a fake story. I don't know why we're going to this much trouble just to not name a guy or lady. It doesn't really matter their gender. But, like, it, it, it's only it, it's a novelty. It's a quirk. To make it a big major selling point, you would have to build the story around the absence of the name, which you could do. Sure, you could do, but ultimately, it, it doesn't. It doesn't have as much appeal as one might think. But yeah, you could make up a fake name and have your character go by it, and then all of a sudden find out, aha, that's not my fake. It's not my real name, which is fine. You know, they do. Ludlum does it in the Bourne books. Jason Bourne's given name isn't Jason Bourne, it's David Webb. But at the end of the day, it's not really so much about his name, other than once we have a name, we have a plot point and a story element. We don't intentionally deny it to the reader to build mystery because it, it's mystery. We, we could get more out of it in other places. It's not a bad question, though. But mostly it's a sentence structure issue. Question three. Uh, this came up a couple times in the last two weeks. Do my beta readers need spoiler warnings? And I've, I've really struggled with this. Because my gut answer is no. The beta readers should know that, hey, I'm reading a thing before it goes out the door. 
I'm going to have it spoiled to me. And you just treat your beta reader like an adult who can understand that they're seeing a thing early and, you know, the magic of it is going to be spoiled. But I'm not entirely sure because some people hold spoilers as these very precious things, these fragile Fabergé kind of egg deals, like it's grandma's good silver and we don't want to break it or something. I don't know why you'd want to go out of your way to treat your beta reader as a consuming reader, as a customer reader, as opposed to the person helping you publish a finished thing. Because a beta reader is on this side of the publication line, the still in progress, still working on the book side of the line, as opposed to the go out and buy my book side of the line. And it shouldn't be that big a deal. It, it just, it shouldn't. It's just, they're going to read the book. Hopefully they're reading the whole thing and hopefully they're reading it to give you an impression of how it could possibly go over in a larger audience. So yeah, it's going to be spoiled for them. I don't know if that needs warning or indication or whatever, but ultimately you're not really, you're not hurting anything by giving it, but you're also not getting anything out of it. This is definitely a question where I'm just kind of go, eh, it's up to you and then shrug and move on. So people in chat, people out there watching, do you guys have any questions about anything? If you're looking for uh, today's cup date, it's water. It's just water. Um, I it, It's half a cup of tea. It's cold. I'm going to chug it right now, but mostly we're doing water today. By and large though, um, yeah. It's cold. I'm cranky. How are you? Shall we keep moving? On we go. On we go. Question four. What's something you learned this week about writing communities that surprised you? Yeah, uh, I learned... Two very huge things that very much surprised me. One in a good way, one in a not good way. Let's do the good one first. I ran into some writing communities in some non-Discord spaces. Yes, the hashtag writing community voice is incoming. Get ready. But uh, the positive thing I learned is that there are a lot of smaller writing communities putting out a lot of let's see, let's call them very practical pieces of information. Like, hey, here's how to deal with winter when you're living in your car. Or here's a list of all the places you can go to get warm socks or food for your baby. And it's the, the praxis of this, the, the action and helpfulness, the community support is coming more from writing communities who are looking to give back than, you know, waiting for someone else just to stumble across the information. I was really very impressed by that, especially in uh, my local area where there is a local writing group of about four or five people who went out of their way in advance of the snowstorm to distribute blankets and food and make sure that, you know, um, diabetic people had access to insulin 
and were just generally doing their best to be good humans to other humans, even if they disagree with them on other lines. I, I was really very pleased to see that kind of solidarity. That made me feel very good. But now we're going to talk about a shitty thing. Now we're going to talk about a thing that's not so great. Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a thing. I don't know what to call it. But there is a thing in the hashtag writing community where um, people just join and they don't, they don't do anything. They just join. They just come in. Now, I'm not saying they should not be allowed. There should be no gatekeeper in that way, shape, or form. But um, they're just sitting there. Like they've just joined this Facebook group or they've just joined this Discord or they've, they've you know, come to the meeting or they, they, they signed up to the newsletter. And they don't do anything. They don't respond. They don't ask questions. They don't show up to events. They don't, you know, try to get a draft done and ask questions. They don't ask for help. They don't look for critique partners or feedback. They're just sort of part of the population. And I was really surprised to discover just how pervasive that is. Like I, in every group, you assume there's going to be some people who either because of nerves or shyness or anxiety, they don't contribute as much as they could. You know, they'll say hi, but then they'll retreat a little bit. You have to expect that when you're running a group. That's totally fine. The problem is, however, the people who won't even do that and anxiety isn't an issue. We're not trying to overcome some kind of social obstacle. We're not trying to encourage people who, you know, were on the fence and I just wish I could. We're just talking about people who are sucking up the oxygen in the space. I don't understand why you would go through the hoops, whether we're joining on Facebook and we're answering a questionnaire or we're just clicking links on a Discord or whatever, why you would go to those steps and do that thing if you weren't going to make an effort to benefit yourself from participation. If you're about to tell me, John, you've probably signed up to newsletters that don't do you any good, Yes, I have. But one of the better things I've ever done was prune out those newsletters so that I only read now the stuff that actually matters to me and everything else just gets junked. By, by curating that, it gives me a lot more focus and a lot more time and it gives me a chance to really like think in certain ways and act on certain things without cluttering up my head with all this other nonsense. And I left a lot of groups that I was a member of and I would tell myself, oh, one day I'll get in there. One day I'll say something. But I'd been saying that for days, weeks, months, and years and I never really had. So why stick around? I don't know why somebody would join a group, an active group especially, with a real chance that could in theory help them. They could learn something. They could grow and change. They could improve their writing. They could get published. They could learn stuff they didn't know before and then not do it. If you were hesitant, if you were afraid, if you were scared of feedback or criticism or rejection, why did you join the group in the first place? And I understand that we're talking baby steps here. I get that we're talking about like itty bitty, itty bitty, like I did it now, now six months, eight months, 10 months, whatever, I will finally say something. But my challenge to you is this, um, say something, be active in your group. You're not going to get laughed at. You're not going to get kicked out. And if you did, 
if if you did get mocked or you did get kicked out, you didn't need to be there in the first place. Seasonal writers? I hadn't considered seasonal writers. That's interesting. Um, I, I didn't think about it in terms of season. I was thinking more about the people who park themselves in a population and don't do anything. But yeah, there could be a seasonality to it. There could be a, a conditionality of time, sure. But either way... I, I don't understand going somewhere and then not doing something. It's sort of like getting a getting a seat at a restaurant and then not ordering the food. It just doesn't I, I don't understand. So if you're out there and you've joined these groups or you're currently sitting in these groups and not doing anything, I would love to hear why. If you're watching this on YouTube in the future, uh, leave me a comment down below. I, I'd love to, to find out why you're not doing the thing I thought you'd be doing. On we go. Question five. I'm a writer with zero audience. Should I grow one on Patreon? Okay. Okay. This is a great question. This comes up a lot. Like a lot, a lot. Like regularly. Here's the thing. Just because it's Patreon does not mean you will automatically find an audience. In the same way that you won't automatically get an audience from being on, uh, I don't know if it's pronounced coffee or Kofi or Substack or Blue Sky or Button Down or Beehive or Twitter or Facebook or wherever else. The audience isn't going to just magically appear. And the fact that Patreon is functionally a paywall, or at least it could be, is not always going to be a great incentive for people when you're starting from scratch. If you have material, whether you're putting out weekly stuff, you're going to write a chapter a week, you're going to write a poem a week, you're going to you know, record a thing, do a thing on the regular, and you can schedule it. Or if you're going to do a thing consistently enough and the schedule is neither here nor there, but the audience comes to you because you produce something at some point, then Patreon's a great tool. I love my Patreon. Patreon is fantastic. I like half my work goes to Patreon, maybe a little bit more, frankly. Um, I, it's a great audience, but I built it not from Patreon. I built it elsewhere and brought them to Patreon because building an audience is an active task. You have to do stuff. Remember, we just talked about doing stuff in a group. This is one of the things you get to do. It isn't just, you know, shilling your work and saying, buy my stuff, buy my stuff, buy my stuff, and hopefully someone does. It's about producing consistently a set of things, not just products, but personality, engagement. And I'm not talking content engagement. I mean, like being a person and talking to each other, sharing things, being active, not just sitting there. And then once in a blue moon, you pop out like a meerkat to, to say a thing and then you duck back in your tunnel. Audience growth is slow. And I know a lot of people, especially when they start with nothing, get really anxious about how long is it going to take because I need that audience because I need the money because I need this to work because I need this to be successful. And, and they take that huge stack of anxiety and they squish it down to the immediate moment. And I know that temptation because I do the same thing. It's, it's hard to shake if that's been sort of ground into you or built into you to some degree. But the... The way you grow that audience is with consistent effort over time. It isn't just a matter of, you know, here's my link, sign up, and that's it. That's part of it. 
but that's not enough because without a context, somebody isn't going to be able to know why they should just that they can giving them a links half the battle. The other half is giving them a sense of, well, if you sign up, here's what you get, not just in a transactional way, but in a small culture way, you sign up to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash John helps you write better. It will lay out the stuff you get for two bucks a month. But also beyond that, you get way more because there's, there's a, I've been doing it for years. There's tons of stuff there. Growth on Patreon is not a sure thing, especially when you're not terribly disciplined in your production, especially when you're not quite sure what it is you should be producing in the first place. My advice to you would be to hold off on Patreon, even though you're probably looking at the dollar signs Patreon could bring in. My advice to you would be to start somewhere smaller with a lower barrier for entry and just foster a few people. Aim for two, three, five, go to 10, maybe 15, and then start thinking, okay, I've been doing this a while. I've been on one or more social media platforms. I've been engaging with people. We're following each other. We seem to have common ground. I keep producing stuff. They keep responding to it. And then make that jump. You don't have to start there. Also, it's worth pointing out that some writers for their audiences, Patreon's not a good fit because their writing is too inconsistent. And while, yeah, you're giving people money that they will use to buy food, pay for, you know, pay for rent, keep the lights on, et cetera, if the, there's a delay in that reward, a lot of people will get very frustrated as to why they're giving but not getting back. Patreon hinges on a transactional nature of things. So don't discount that just because you're seeing money come in and that's how my audience is. Audiences are not only money generators. They're people. Treat them like people. On we go. Question six. I haven't shown my writing to anyone because it might not be good. How do I know it's good if people haven't seen it yet? I literally just recorded a podcast about this for later this week. So here's the thing. You have to know, you, the writer, have to know that your writing is the best you could possibly make it at the time. It's not the best ever, because if you spend more time writing and more time you know, working on stuff, you will, you'll be better. If you work backwards and you look at the writing you're doing now versus the writing you did years ago, chances are you're better off. But we don't only look at the response of other people for validation in ourselves. I think a lot of the hashtag writing community as well as social media in general, wires us to validate ourselves through the response of others. And when we don't get that response, when people don't tell us that we're good enough, frequently enough, if at all, we start to feel like we're not any good, which is backwards. Because you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're always waiting for someone else to tell you that you're okay. Uh, it is a miserable way to live. Uh, I live like that too frequently and too much. It sucks. I would not recommend it. Don't do it. But to answer this question more specifically, um, did you do your best job? Did you do the best you could? Not perfect. Nobody needs it to be perfect. You should not chase perfect. Don't even do that. It's not good for you either. But if you did your best job and the story is well organized 
and the work is continuing and yeah, it might stumble and yeah, it might not have all the best things yet. It might just be a second draft or, you know, a messy chapter that you might rewrite later. If you tried your best and you can, and you make consistent progress, the response you're going to get is probably pretty good. Certainly better than, oh my God, this is garbage, never write again, which is the response I think a lot of people are afraid of getting at all. If you haven't shown your stuff to anybody and you're worried that when you start naming people you could show it to, you immediately start thinking that they're going to be critical ahead of them being supportive, you're showing your stuff to the wrong people. If you're worried that the people around you will make fun of you, tease you, mock you, tear you apart instead of pointing to the good things you did. You're showing it to the wrong people. If you need good people to show good things to, let me know. I'll be happy to introduce you to a whole pile of them who would be very excited and happy to read your stuff. But by and large, um, your work is good and you should know your work is good because you believe in yourself as you have did it and you've done it using the best skills and tools and abilities you have at the time you did it. You tried your best, you did your best, therefore it's good. It will be better later, but that doesn't mean you need to like wait and wait and wait until everything is done and then show it off. There's no reason to do that. If you're really wondering what other people think, which is a separate issue from I don't know if it's good enough, but if you, if you want to show it to people, show it to people. If you're worried about their response, find better people. Not people who will blow smoke up your ass and only tell you that it's glowing and you're magical and everything is neat, but certainly people who won't make fun of you or make you feel bad for doing it. That doesn't help anybody. A lot of your writing is going to be done by you alone. You sit in a coffee place, you type on your laptop, you sit at your you sit on your bed, you hang out on the couch, you write by yourself. Maybe somebody comes in and asks you, hey, what are you doing? But by and large, it's you and your brain and the screen. You have to trust that the relationship between you, your brain, and the screen is good, is at least good enough for you to keep doing what you're doing. That has to be step number one in the productive process. You're in charge of this. Other people are nice and helpful and supportive but if you're not building yourself a foundation, if you're not laying the groundwork for you to be proud of yourself, this is going to get a lot harder for you before it gets better. And I don't want that for you. You are going to be imperfect. You are going to make mistakes. You are going to get better over time. You are going to not know stuff now that you will know in the future. And none of that impacts whether or not you're a good person who does their best work. You're good. You're going to do good stuff. Just keep going. Other people will handle it or not, and that's on them, not on you. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? Shall we keep moving? Are we good? Plowing right along? Flying through the day. I'm thankful. I'm always thankful. But 
Um, yeah, it's just been one of those days, I guess. I guess it's been one of those weeks, really. But yeah, we can keep going, shall we? Let's. Question seven. Why do I keep starting, quitting, and restarting the same story over and over and over? How do I not do that? Okay. This is, first of all, you should know it's incredibly common to do this. It's not bad. And it happens a lot. It is, however, a problem because starting and then quitting and then restarting really never lets you make progress. Even if the progress you make every time is incremental. You know, you you start writing and you get to, I don't know, 5,000 words. And then you quit and start over. And the next time you get to 6,000. The next time you get to 10,000. Yeah, you're making that little incremental progress, but you're not... You're not approaching this in the right way. Maybe it's fear. Chances are, if you are starting and restarting, it's because you're trying to, I'm making air quotes, get it right, or have something come out of you in a certain way and get expressed in a certain way, and you feel like it's not there, or you're second-guessing yourself in terms of the response it'll get, like, way down the road, or you are otherwise just not pushing forward you're, when you write until you hit a point of difficulty and then you bail because you don't want this art, this craft to be difficult because you have not accepted the fact that this craft and art at times is difficult on purpose and it's supposed to be. If it were easier, um, we'd all be doing it all the time and doing it well. There are times when writing is hard and it sucks and it's a pain in the ass and it's slow and it feels frustrating and tedious, but it just, it just happens. If you're bailing because whenever it gets hard, you want to quit and you know you'll do better next time, you're not really giving yourself a chance because chances are you're either afraid of it getting hard or you're afraid of failing. And both of those things are options that in, in live activity, you, you got to play with fire there. You have to accept that. So part number one, how do I not do this? How do I kind of stop my cycle of starting, quitting, and restarting? You have to forgive yourself. It's going to get hard. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to feel like this is dumb and you're wasting your time. And instead of starting over or just repeating the same part you like because you know you've nailed the first 10,000 words, so you'll just keep writing it and never push yourself forward. I need you to be brave, and I need you to push through. I need you to get to that spot where you normally give up and choose instead to not give up. I need you to try. I need you to make an effort. And it'll be hard, and you'll be frustrated, and you'll tell yourself all different kinds of horse shit that you're not good enough, that this sucks, you should quit, you should go back, you could do better the next time, etc. You'll come up with a million different reasons to not keep going forward because you will have stepped out of your comfort zone. But let me tell you this, and please hear me when I say this. Some of the best writing exists just at the edge of your comfort zone. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It feels risky, but it's not unsafe. You need to remind yourself of that. Focus on that sometimes. But this whole pattern of start and stop and redo is not getting you where you need to go. It's giving you the illusion and delusion 
that you are actively writing, but you're not getting where you keep telling everybody you want to go. You want to be a published writer. You want to have a career. You want to sell a lot of stuff. Well, one of the big steps in doing that is finishing what you start. And maybe, just maybe, and I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but just maybe you need to stop and consider whether or not you really want to. A lot of people love the idea. They're enamored with the daydream and the fantasy of being a writer and having, you know, just money trucks back up to your front door because you've made up a made-up story. But there's a reality to it that a lot of people don't want to contend with. And there's a, a need for discipline and an ability to push through frustration and fear that a lot of people are unwilling to tackle because it's hard. So, to answer your question, get to the edge of your comfort zone and choose to do different. Even 10 words further at a time is enough. But chances are you're doing it because you're afraid or because you're easily frustrated or because you're letting some assumption or projection of thought dominate you instead of you remembering that you're in charge of this and you can come and go and write as much as you want. And if it's really important to you, you'll keep going even when it's hard. On we go. Question eight. I want to challenge myself to write flash fiction. Do I write something and then trim it back? Do I find it in the edit? How do I flash fiction? First of all, let's define what flash fiction is. That's usually fiction that's under 300-ish words. Flash fiction is really, really, really short. It's not necessarily minimalist. You can cover a lot of ground in 300 words or so. Although the modern system might be 280, but whatever. It's basically one side of one piece of paper. How do you do it? You want to avoid any strategy where you overwrite and then trim back. That sounds like it'll help because you'll get a whole story and then you get to, you know, pull out the scissors and cut it down. But you're going to end up cutting so much that the story's very likely not going to have a lot of shape left. You also don't want to get into a case where you're finding the story in the edit, meaning you're going to write, let's say, 500 words when you need 300, and then trim it down and trim it down because eventually you're going to reach a point with that process where you're still going to need words, but you can't entirely find them without damaging the structure you've built. So finding it in the edit doesn't really work either. The best approach for flash fiction is to work forwards, not backwards. So from the planning stage, sit down and address a simple Spartan construction. Here is a plot, single conflict, single resolution. Here is an arc, instance, you know, uh, a goal, a plan, a challenge, and a commitment. Uh, simple character development. You can still move the, the character all over the globe in 300 words for sure, but by and large you want to keep a level of intimacy to it. Keep the story scope small. Keep it personable. Because, again, we're going to use that economy of language to maximize our connection to the reader. That's why flash fiction horror is often so seemingly mundane. The, the regular plain stuff becomes scariest. Monster under the bed, strange noise late at night in the house, etc. 
because that gives us a way to ground our emotional connection to the story. So you flash fiction through short organization and simplicity of plan that you just execute on. You don't need five steps in a plot. You don't need the magic MacGuffin doodad to do the thing. You need to keep it small and keep it narrow and focus in on the character or the plot or the conflict or whatever the the single most important emotional instance is and then build from there as opposed to overwriting and scaling back, which is, is it doable? Sure. But it's going to, you're going to spend far more time cutting than you are writing, which for a lot of people is not the best place to come to work from, to develop from. It's going to be easier if you write to it as opposed to work backwards. I hope that helps. Question nine. Don't I have to worry about telling more than showing when I'm trying to make it clear that character B likes character A? A. So where this where this comes from and where this stems from is two parts. First, the show versus tell debate that people love to have on the internet. We're going to talk about that in a second. And then the idea as to how you develop a relationship between characters. Now, we're going to start with the character relationship part because it's crunchier. But we'll cover all the parts here. When you're trying to illustrate that one character likes another character, but we're only really following one of those two characters. So let's suppose that we are alternating between A and B. A gets a chapter, B gets a chapter. When we're writing from A, we don't get into B's head. So any response, any indication that B likes A in an A chapter comes from A's response to what B does. Likewise, when we're in a B chapter, we follow B, not A. So B can express directly that they like A because B is the one doing the liking. What this sets up and what this leads us to think about is how characters demonstrate care for each other. Because it's going to be more than just statements of profound melodramatic, oh, you are the one to whom I love forever. Oh, you are the, the salt in my ocean or the, the crackers in my soup or some nonsense like that. You, you want to get past that because saying it isn't the most effective way of expressing it because it's the synthesis of what, you, what a character says and what a character does that not only expresses to another character a strong, you know, clear, understandable thing, but it also expresses to a reader, oh, it's not just hot air, it's not just talk, and it's not just vague actions to interpret. I can park these two things together, and then all of a sudden I get action plus word equals feeling and sentiment. Now, let's take this away from B and away from A and into telling and showing. Because people thrill at the idea of telling and showing as binaries. There is telling, then there's the Grand Canyon, then there's showing, and you're supposed to do one and not so much the other. And if you do, if you, if you mess that up, you've ruined everything. This is all horseshit. That's not how this works at all. Telling and showing are two different tools to express information to the reader. Telling is direct. 
showing is a little bit more bendy, a little bit more circuitous. Though you can be direct in showing. And there are times where some showing is telling and times when some telling is showing because they're not exclusive to each other. They're not polar opposites. It's just a matter of sometimes you have to say a thing outright because to, to do it any other way would take too long or not fit the moment you're in. And there are going to be times where you need to show because telling is too brief, too harsh. And we want to paint a bit more of a picture and add some color to it and detail to it. Don't keep track of it like we're doing some accounting exercise. Like we have six telling and we have six showing and we need to reach a certain number or that there's a, there's a quota of each we're supposed to have. And if you have more than 10 tellings, whatever unit of telling is, you're wrong. It does not work like that. You want to make sure that you are relaying information to the reader in the most effective way possible, whether that's telling or showing. Now, where writers get into trouble with this is not so much that they're telling or that they're showing, but in how they're writing the information, the sentences they make, the way they choose to say things, or the order in which they tell them, or the order, if we don't want to use the word tell twice, the order in which they express the information or relay it to the reader. Because you never want to give the impression, especially to an adult audience, that you are telling the story at them. That there is very clearly a stiff, detached structure to it where you are basically encouraging your audience to sit crisscross applesauce on a carpet square while you narrate events that happened in the past. As opposed to a more dynamic style of story construction where the way you write it makes it feel like the story is happening all around the character as they, uh, as they do whatever it is they do. The, the point here, the whole point of this at overall, is to get you thinking about how you create that most immersive cinematic quality to your writing. How do you get the reader to feel like the story is something beyond a flat, static thing they can imagine? How do we breathe life into these ideas? How can we describe them so that what the character sees is the camera in their head playing this movie? So it's more a matter of understanding that you have loads of different tools, of which showing and telling are two of them, to get this information across. Now there's a great question in chat. When describing a character moving to a different location, is there an ideal slash preferred way to order the experience on their senses? Do I start with what they see, then go to hear, then go to smell, etc. of a new location? Okay, fun, interesting historical writing fact. In the 1940s and 50s, there was very clearly, especially in Europe, a definite way of organizing that stuff. You start with vision, then go to hearing, then you'd probably go to smell and leave taste for last because we don't want our characters like licking the street or anything. And it was very regimented. The reason they did this, sorry, the reason they did this was to make sure that the way they describe things, like I'm going to give you more visual information than I'm going to give you more sound information. And it doesn't mean like they wrote a sound, they wrote a, a sight sentence than a sound sentence than a this, and then they would cycle all the way through. 
is that they would prioritize the information in a certain way because that's how they could picture it in their head. They chopped up their movie, their the mental movie, and then laid it out in pieces. It's old. The it. Oh. What happened in the 1960s, especially around 63, 64, 65, to change this was, one, a lot more people started doing drugs, and two, we started listening to women in minorities, or at least people, white dudes considered minorities. They were not minorities. They were just people from other places. And all of a sudden, uh, some of the white dudes who established those things started dying off because they were working in the 20s and 30s and they'd been smoking for 40-something years. So they started dying. This opened up a lot of ground for other people to come in and bring in new ways of doing stuff. So beyond the old-fashioned way of doing something, you want to make sure you engage the reader's senses frequently, but not necessarily in an order. Sometimes you're going to have the most, you know, flexibility picking and choosing. Like if we're writing a scene in a kitchen, like a, like a working restaurant kitchen, let's say, chances are you're going to lean more heavily on the sound because there's pots and pans and people talking and things sizzling and the smell because cooking is predominantly, you know, a taste experience. So smell of stuff is an issue. The same way that if we were describing a, a garbage dump, there's not really a whole lot to hear, but smell is totally a factor. So it's about partnering the sense information with a context clue to help the reader better feel like they're there. So we're in a situation, we're in a, a crowded subway station and the killer is stalking their next victim. What senses are best to engage here? Now, there's an inherent level of ableism in writing that's going to prioritize sight and visual information. We just have to sort of roll with that a little bit. But beyond that, how else can we engage? Do we want to hear the squeak of brakes in the, in the tra- as the train approaches the station? Do we want to, you know, smell the, the, the sweat and the, and the stink of people as they crush towards this little metal tube? Like, what can we, what sense information of any order can we give people to help them feel like what they're watching is happening all around them? Pick and choose your senses, pick and choose the order, and make sure you're engaging the reader. (coughs) Excuse me. And make sure you're engaging the reader intensely. It's not really a priority to worry about. Great question. Great question. Now, if you're about to ask me a follow-up question, like, do I have to worry about patterning? Like, if I start this scene with, um, I don't know, let's say, if I do one particular scene with sight, then sm- then hearing, then smell, should I worry that my next scene is sight, hearing, and smell? No. I mean, if you really want to split hairs, if you really want to be, you know, a jerk about your own writing and find a reason to pick everything apart, then yeah, everything is a pattern and nothing should be duplicated and you should go out of your way to constantly shuffle everything around. But sometimes it's just easier to write the thing in whatever sense you want, in whatever order you want. The reader's not keeping track of that as much as you think you are, as much as you worry they might be. Yes, they're going to keep track of whether or not Every paragraph on this page starts with the character's proper noun. 
But like in terms of tracking what senses show up in what order, they're they're not really thinking about that. That doesn't mean they're they're dumb or stupid or something. It just they're not consciously thinking about it on that level. They're trying to be immersed. So do whatever you need to to immerse them. Great question. Are there any others? As I start putting more and more water in me. I'm so glad it was helpful. My goal in life, as always, is to help somebody write better. So, yeah. Happy to. Love answering questions. Shall we keep going? I'll keep hydrating. I've been talking all day. I shoveled and I just started talking. On we go. On we go. Question number 10. Any advice for writing in pockets of day, of downtime, especially at a day job? Yes. Several, in fact. Um, whether you are writing in, in like two-minute breaks while you go to the bathroom or while you are just writing while you're waiting for a phone call or in a zoom, you know, for a zoom meeting to start or whatever, get used to not restricting or counting your words. Don't think about it in terms of, I have to write 200 words or I, I need to be writing more. I'm making air quotes, whatever more is just produce one more word at least than you had previously. So sometimes in that in that downtime where we're, you know, sitting there waiting for something to happen and we're just, you know, on our phone tappity tap tap tapping away, you might only get 15 words or you might only get the rough idea of a scene. Any increase in production that wasn't there before is good. Even if down the road when it's when you do have time and you do sit down to write, you might reject it entirely because that idea you had last Wednesday was garbage. What the hell were you thinking? That's fine. But at the time, on that Wednesday, it seemed like a reasonably good idea. Don't automatically dismiss it just because, you know, you wrote it while pooping on company time. The, 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 the point is, the big issue here when people want to write, you know, at downtime is that they get really critical about how much they write that they're supposed to maximize every second of the, of the downtime and wring it out like water from a wet rag. And if they don't do that, they somehow fail. When what they're failing to realize is that any progress is good progress here. This is a long-term marathon. And especially for those, of, those writers out there looking to just produce first drafts, any, any amount of progress is good progress. Yeah, it'd be great if you didn't have downtime. It'd be great if you didn't have a day job and you could just sit and write in big, long chunks, free from the burden of financial concerns because we all came to our senses and, you know, kicked capitalism to the curb and adopted universal basic income and then eliminated borders and just started being nicer to everybody. That would be wonderful if we could do those things. But until all the swine and the pigs of the world, you know, meet a brick wall or an untimely but very pleasant demise, um, we are instead stuck with this sort of idea where some people have day jobs. Take advantage of the time when you can, but don't judge the amount of time you get. Downtime on one day might be five minutes. It might be 25 on another. 
you don't have to get in your 25 minutes, 24 and a half minutes of writing done. Five minutes helps. Two minutes helps. Ten minutes help. Sure, it'd be great if it were more, but we got to work with what we got. And there are going to be times where even you, even though you've got downtime, you've got other stuff to do. You know, there's phone calls to make. You got to worry about your kids. You got to check in with this. You got to plan that. That's okay. You're not losing something. You're not behind the curve. You're not failing some race or anything like that. Take advantage of the downtime to the best of your ability and understand that the writing can happen in loads of different ways. Writing notes on your phone or texting yourself or leaving yourself a voice memo is just a just as valid a form of writing as you sitting down with Scrivener or Ulysses or you know sitting down in Word or whatever. It's all writing. The, the method, the time, those are all variable things that we can adjust. What matters most is that you're doing it. Don't judge it. Just do it. Produce it. And sneak it in when you can. Related to this, says chat, is there a way I can quicker or easy, more easily jump back into a scene? I often feel like I have to reread a lot when I come back in cold, which eats up into downtime. Yeah, yeah, there is a, there are quicker, easier ways. One of them is going to occupy your brain a little bit more, but it's a really helpful thing. Um, if you know when your downtime is coming, like it's always pretty routine, there's always a lull between your... 11 a.m. meeting and lunch, or there's always a lull because you finish your lunch early. If you know the downtime is coming, in advance of that downtime, just start thinking about what you wrote. You don't need to read it verbatim. You very seldom have to reread verbatim. But start thinking about different things like, okay, so last night I wrote that scene where the, the two guys get into an argument on the bridge. Okay, so today I want to pick up from the bridge. Sometimes that's enough. So often, and I think too often, writers get very bogged down in this idea of like, I have to know exactly what I said. It's okay if you don't. It's okay if you repeat yourself or if you, you know, struggle a little bit and like, you know, you need to add it. Like you, you know where you left off ish, but you know, you'll need to connect the dots better. So you write yourself a note in all caps, you know, connect the dots better and then you start writing just from where you're writing. The other sort of less of a running start approach, I guess you could say, to this would be just to write cold. You don't always have to pick up from exactly the place you left off. There's no reason no one's going to know, no one's going to care if you skipped ahead to where you know a chapter is or where you know a break is or you know the big scene is. It's okay to come in cold and write this thing out of order. It For a lot of writers, that's, that's one of those moments where they clutch pearls because, oh my God, I'm asking you to deviate from your writing style. But at the same time, um, in the end, it all gets smoothed out. And in the end, it all gets stitched back together. And it might feel uncomfortable, but part of that discomfort might just be a great catalyst for you to help you take advantage of that downtime rather than always having to you know stop and go back and catch up and then pick back up. Also, just as a side note, if you still find yourself rereading a lot to get back up to speed, you might be rereading back too much too slowly. You just 
a page, paragraph, five lines, six lines, just the last couple moments to catch the vibe, to pick back up with a line of dialogue. That's really where you can train yourself to attach as opposed to, okay, I need to read the whole chapter again. What did I do? What is this? That basically what that conveys to me is, hey, I need to spend more time thinking about my story beyond just the fact that I should be writing it. Here are my characters. What are they doing? How am I going to get them to grow? What's my arc? What's the world like? You know, think about its components regularly as opposed to thinking about it in terms of my task list. I have to do this. I have to do that. Here is my outline. I stay in this little box. Rather than think about it functionally, think about it fluidly, creatively, in more of a malleable constantly spinning imagination because my day job sucks the soul out of me way. So I'm going to occupy my brain with this thing. Now, if you have one of those day jobs where like actual serious things are required, like, I don't know, you're a doctor or a lawyer or something where you need to pay attention to the shit that's going on by all means, please pay attention to the shit that's going on. That said, um, you don't, you don't always need to reread as much as you think you do. I hope that helps. It's a great question. Um, but the amount you have to reread is going to be different for everybody. Some people need that long sort of runway to get back up to speed. And there's not really a whole lot you can do. You can shorten it a little bit with just more prep thinking. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> that's a really individual answer. It's a great question, though. Love it. On we go. Question 11. How's the writing group going? Do you think it's working out? I should have put that second question on its own line. My fault. That's what I get for rushing my formatting. The writing group is going really, really well. I'm really, really pleased with it. Um, especially now I took a week off because I had a cold. It kind of sucked. Uh, I am better. Thank you for asking. But um, it has really picked up and it has really helped. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I run a writing group. Um, it's, it's a four pay group. You pay your way in and then we meet every, usually Wednesday night and you bring one to three pages of what you're working on. And we go over it. We talk about what works. We talk about what doesn't. We celebrate the good shit. We highlight the bad stuff. We get suggestions as to how things could be. And we ask questions like, Hey, what are you trying to do in this scene? Why did you pick this word? Because what I, what I'm hoping for because I do think it is working out. What I'm hoping for is to get writers not only writing more consistently, which is important, but to get writers thinking more critically about their writing. Not just, I've got a made-up story with this character and she's going to win the lottery. That's, that's nice. Why did you make the decisions you made? What's the thinking behind that fancy idea you have? How do you make those decisions? How did you choose to have this scene here? Why is this sentence here? Why did you say it this way? Those questions to me are infinitely more interesting than just the general discussion of how excited you are about the premise. Premise, great. Love a good premise. Love a good story idea. But it's execution matters because it could be a great idea, but if you fail to get it across to a reader, it doesn't matter how good the idea was because it'll never come out that way. And I think that's what the best function of a writing group does. I think a writing group builds better writers collaboratively and collectively. 
it's different than individual coaching. It's got a lot of the same elements. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of going through line by line, word by word. But the focus is slightly different. Whereas coaching is more tailored specifically to the person. Where it's more about what are you doing and how are you writing it. The writing group brings in more of the, you know, possible consumer readership element. Hey, these other people who were telling you like, oh, they love that scene you wrote. It was scary. Or they love that paragraph. It was really pretty or something. Though That sort of feedback can help soothe that anxiety about, I don't know, if my, remember that other question we had about, I don't show my writing to other people, so how do I know it's good? That positive feedback from somebody who's doing the same thing as you, trying to write and get better, just like you are, goes a really, really long way. When you get a writer turning around and telling you like, oh shit, you wrote that thing really well. Why aren't you writing more of it? I want to read it. That can be infinitely more encouraging than me, a professional in the field telling you like, oh, don't give up. So I think I think that writing group serves a really critical midpoint. It's sort of the overlap in the Venn diagram between a full-on coaching session and just random beta readers, you know, telling you what's good, what's bad, etc. I think that writing group just in general crosses that divide nicely. I do think it's working out. And if you uh, want more details on it, um, head over to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash John helps you write better. Uh, hop on the Discord. Uh, the details for tomorrow go up uh, tomorrow. Although I might do them later tonight, that's fine too. But there's a whole like section dedicated to prep for the writing group and talking about it and who's coming in and what they're bringing. You'll see. It's great. Check it out. Okay. Thank you for asking this question. On we go. Almost done. Question 12. I got to get a mouthful of water for this. I'm sorry. Mm. Why do so many self-publishing authors follow the same structures and conventions as traditional publishing? Because they're scared. So I, I don't mean to make that like a really flat answer, but it's a real flat answer. Everybody's used to traditional publishing because for a very long time, the majority of what we encountered was traditionally published. Now, that has changed in the last 20 years for sure. But by and large, we're in a situation where we all remember traditional publishing sort of being the, the big dog in the field. And it's just the big thing that that's just how you do it. And it makes sense that a lot of those structures would be carried over when it's time for us to do our own things because that's what we're used to. It is, however, not the only way to do stuff. It shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be. You don't have to repeat the parts of traditional publishing in order to make self-publishing work well. Nor do you have to let your self-publishing correct the mistakes of traditional publishing. You can go produce your own stuff in totally different directions. But a lot of people see the elements of traditional publishing as very comforting even though it was very rejection-oriented or very gatekeeper-y or something like that, they look at traditional publishing as sort of like the model to follow. And traditional publishing, just so we're clear, wants that because that means they get to reinforce them being the big dog in the field. I think too often people are really afraid to try. Try something bold and different. What if you didn't publish on Amazon? What if you just sold it through your website? What if you, you know, 
instead of producing a big giant fancy, I buy this on audible audiobook. What if you produced it yourself? What if you and five of your friends got together every Thursday or, you know, just before you did your D and D game, you, you recorded 10 minutes of audio. What if you were willing to do something different just to see if it would work? I think too often self-publishing authors get attracted to the end result and they like the luxury of saying that they did it on their own. But in order to do that, they're still going to do the same tools of their enemy, the same systems they you know, avoided. They're still going to behave in those same ways because a truly revolutionary approach scares them. There's more rejection involved. There's more risk involved. It feels less organized and it feels different and different can feel unsafe for people. But it's just as valid. It's just different. It's, I've always wanted to tell you, and I'm telling you now probably for the first time, self-publishing should be an insurgency. Hang on, there's a question in chat that I realize I should have addressed. Sorry if you're about to explain this. I am now about to explain it. Don't worry. What counts as structures and conventions of traditional publishing in this context? Structures and conventions. Chapter expectations, word count sizes, genre layouts, book layouts, sales copy structure, how the book should look, how you market the book, how you grow your audience, how you produce whatever you produce, how you make the story a book is what I mean when I talk structure and convention. How you turn your idea into a thing that looks like all the other things on the shelf. That's what I mean when I say structures and conventions. And I think people want those things because they're comforting. They think books should look a certain way. They think covers need to have this, chapters need to have that, genres should do this, not do that, stories should go like this. And All of those things, because when you're self-publishing, you're the publisher, not Amazon. I know Amazon produces the file, but you need to see that as different than publishing. Self-publishing is you. You're the publisher. You get to do all the gatekeeping for yourself. If you want to turn around and go, hey, I want to publish this thing like where all the pages are ragged and tattered, or I want to print this on old-fashioned paper, Or I want a cover that has like, I don't know, a little transparency in the beginning of it. Or I want to tell this story just spiral bound and only 60 of them. Or I want to produce this audio with like lots of sound effects. Or I want to reference the Wu-Tang Clan or whatever it is. All the convent, all the way you do, you get to question everything. Self-publishing should be an insurgency. It should be a revolution against every system if you're willing to do it. You don't have to just not question some things and then question other things. Question all the things. Yes, you could publish a book in th- that's 300 pages soft cover. Yes, you could have... Th- 28 to 35 chapters, sure. Yes, you could have pages of a certain size, sure. What if you didn't? What if you didn't have, you know, a fancy narrator doing your audiobook? What if you did it yourself? What if you taught yourself digital audio engineering so that you could get the best sound possible for yourself? What if 
you hired your friend to design you a cover because you know they do painting and you want that watercolor kind of tragic view that they put in their art on your cover. What if you only produced digital copies? Why not? Is that too artsy? A lot of people balk at that because it's, it's so out there. Yeah, the point should be to go out there, explore a new space, question and challenge things. There's nothing wrong with the structure and convention of traditional publishing, but if all we're really swapping out is who's paying the bills, why didn't you just wait longer for traditional publishing? If you're really going to step out on that limb, if you're really going to be as brave as you say you want to be, go be brave. Question all of it. You could make a difference. If you produce a thing and someone else looks at it and goes, oh, that's a great idea, and they start doing it too, now you're helping multiple people. I think fear runs a lot of this space. And I think there's a fear that the farther they step away from what everybody else is doing, the harder it's going to be to get the results they want. There's no evidence to this. There's no reason to make that. It's just a fear. It's just an assumption. But I think that's what people grapple with. If I get really out there with my book, no one's going to want to buy it. That's not true at all. You just have to figure out a way to market it. You don't have to use Amazon. You don't have to deal with KDP. You don't need to sign yourself into some kind of Faustian deal for exclusivity. You could sell it on your own website. You could. It's not that hard. You can get some WordPress plugins to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Why not? Is it just a little bit more work? Sure. But it's a way you get to define yourself independent from the structure that you kept saying you didn't like. You don't have to replicate the the tools of the slaveholder. You don't have to, you know, be your own oppressor. That's what they want. Traditional publishing wants you to do everything they do just yourself so that they can tell you that you're not doing a good enough job. But this is art. We should do what the hell we want, how we want to the degree we want. That's how things change. That's how things grow. Be that. Be brave. Try something different. It's how things change. On we go. Last question of the day. Question 13. How do I stop comparing myself to others? Now, normally when this question comes up, I give the bread example. The bread example is if I buy a loaf of bread at the store and I go home and I make my own bread, at no point in the production process of making dough to baking it to taking it out of the oven, can I compare the loaf of bread I bought at the store to the bread I made because they're not going to look the same. They'll contain the same ingredients, maybe even in the same proportions, but one object is going to physically end up being separate and different from another object. And what my hope is in the bread example is that you realize that it's okay to make your own bread and that while it is bread in name and concept, it doesn't have to look like everybody else's in order to still be good. That's the point of the bread example. However, over the last three years, more and more people have come to me and said, I know the bread example. That's great. I'm still comparing myself to others. So let me tell you this without the 
flowery metaphor to disguise or cloak some of the things I want to say to you. Why are you doing this? If you are doing this from a position of, I want to make sure I'm not inadequate. I want to make sure I'm as good as everybody else. My question to you is going to be, who told you you ever weren't? Because that's a thing. There was a point where you didn't think you were all that different. Someone had to ingrain that in you or you had to pick it up from somewhere. That had to come to you. It was external and you internalized it. Why are you still doing that? It's not easy to shake. I'm not saying it's like taking off your shoes. It's difficult. It takes some therapy. It takes time. That's fine. Do that. But the point is, the idea of it is, why do you not feel adequate? If you're looking at end results, everybody's on a different path, going different directions, going different ways at different rates. We'll all end up published for sure, but it's not all going to look the same and we shouldn't want it to look the same. So what's this adequacy you're seeking and why are you having trouble finding it? You're writing, they're writing. You wrote a draft, they wrote a draft. If, you're, if this is validation seeking, if this is you saying to yourself, God, I just want to know that I'm doing it right. Here, I'm a pro. You're doing it right. I understand that a lot of people roll their eyes when I say that, but it can be that simple. What is it you're looking for outside of yourself that's telling you or that would tell you that it's good enough? Because chances are, if I give that to you, you're still going to turn around five minutes later and go, you know what? It's not good enough. And that's not because I gave you the wrong thing. It's because you haven't really like done anything to scratch the Teflon that you built around yourself to insulate yourself from criticism or panic. So you won't accept any compliment as truth. You won't accept any idea as valid because it feels weird to be okay at a thing you normally feel unokay with. And I know that's hard. I do it too. That's why I'm in therapy so much comparing yourself to somebody else does not help you do the thing you want to do. If you are looking at them and trying to emulate what they're doing, looking at their technique, looking at their, you know, specific mechanics can help you to a degree, but at the end of the day, you're still going to need to type your way. You're still going to need to, you know, if, if you want to take on their writing schedule, you're still going to need to get up and feed the cat and check on your kids and go to the bathroom and get a cup of tea or something like you can't follow them one for one all the way through and get their same results. It doesn't work that way. You're a different person. That doesn't mean you're automatically a bad person. You're just a different person. Comparing yourself won't help you get the thing you want to do done because the amount of brain space you're dedicating to that feeling of I'm not good enough or they're better than me or somebody else seems to be succeeding when I'm not, that that brain computing cycle stuff, you could be dedicating that to your own work. But you've instead occupied your brain, you've filled up your RAM and your swap file with this other stuff instead. No one asked you to do that. You didn't need to do that. You've elected to do that, which means you can elect to stop as well because it just isn't helping you. Comparison is a tough thing to shake, but it's doable. It's hard, 
it's not instantaneous. When you catch yourself doing it, you just have to shake it off. I don't know how else to describe it to you. You just let things bother you less about it. Yeah, it can totally suck when somebody else gets on Facebook, let's say, and starts crowing about, oh, I did this and I did that and I'm so happy and here's this and here's that, and you feel like shit. I get it. Happens to me every goddamn day. I get it. But what you do in those situations matters because how you follow up that feeling makes a difference. If I go look at Facebook and I see all these happy people who have kids and families and a big house and they don't seem to be worrying about like how, how they're going to like steal food or stay warm tonight. Like if I sat there all day and I looked at that and I felt shitty about it and I, you know, go into my head and I start thinking, well, John, in 1995, had I just done this instead of that, the whole thing would be different. Why didn't I just do that? If I, if I start beating myself up for my failures and my shortcomings, I lose the day to that. I don't want to do that. I got shit I got to do on a particular day. So sticking around that space and that feeling of I'm not good enough and why didn't I do different doesn't help me. But if I look at that stuff on Facebook or wherever and I feel like, oh, that person's happier than I am and oh, that person's richer than I am and oh, that person seems you know pleased with this or that, if I just look at that and go, well, good for them. How nice for them that they get to do that. I don't know if it's real or not. I don't know if they're putting on a brave front and really their life sucks. But why can't I just let them be happy? They're not bothering me. They live like seven fucking states away. We don't talk. We haven't really talked. And we didn't even really talk that much in high school. But somehow I'm Facebook friends with them. But the point is they don't know I'm comparing myself to them. I don't stop and reply to the message, hey, person I went to high school with, I find myself today looking at your photos really wishing that my life was different. Like, that's not going to help anybody. I don't act on that. I just let it sit there and fester. What if I didn't do that? What if instead of sitting there going, gosh, they look happy and my life's a bucket of shit, what if I did something today that made me happy? How do I make my life slightly less a bucket of shit today? That is the question I ask myself all the time when I find myself comparing myself to anybody. Like, oh, here's this other successful writing coach. They're talking about how they just bought a house. Oh, here's this other successful writing coach. They're on a podcast episode saying they made $450,000 from a Facebook training or something else. I feel like trash because, oh man, I, I made, you know, $65 this week. Woo. Okay. But I made $65. I didn't have $65 before. That's pretty awesome. When you get to that point of comparison, you have to look for what you can do that's going to make a difference to you. Maybe that means you walk away for an hour. Maybe that means you go stare out the window with the kids next door. Maybe that means you go pet your cat. Maybe that means you go look at porn. Maybe that means you go have a sandwich. Maybe that means you go to the gym. Maybe that means you just turn off the internet for an hour and go play a video game. You don't have to fall down the hole even though we get used to beating ourselves up. You can scratch the Teflon coating around yourself and accept that there's good in your life. It's small. It doesn't look like they're good, but it's still good. I got a roof over my head and I'm not starving. 
I'm alive. My heart works. I'm not dying. I have all my medication for at least another month and a half. Great. It'd be great if it were warmer and 80 degrees and I lived on a a little beach or an island somewhere and I could just hang out all day in a t-shirt. But I live in a place that gets winter because climate change is a bastard. What do you want me to do? When you find that point of comparison, you sit at a crossroads where you can choose to fall into it and feel shitty and do nothing or cop to it and go, yeah, I'm feeling garbagey right now and then choose to do something better, positive, and different instead. What that thing is, that's up to you. Maybe it has a lot more to do with, you know, being active than passive. I don't know. Everybody's going to have a different way out of the hole they find themselves falling into. But you don't have to sit there, and you don't have to stay there. It's an active process. It's not like, oh, I just... Stop wearing that one thing that doesn't fit me and everything's fine. It's not a one and done, turn on a light switch kind of approach. It's a constant vigilance. I don't mean constant like every second of the day you have to do something about it. I mean constant like you're regularly going to have to check in with yourself and go, I'm sitting here scrolling Facebook. I'm sitting here scrolling Twitter, reading other people's successes. I feel like garbage. And catch yourself. You don't have to beat yourself up. Yeah, it'd be great if things had gone a different way. But where you're at is where you're at. And that doesn't mean you have to accept it. It means you could change it if you wanted to. You don't have to stay stuck. You don't have to stay behind. You don't have to stay feeling shitty to punish yourself or prove something to somebody. You could change. It's hard. It's scary. But it's doable. It's a practice. It's a habit, just like writing every day, just like mapping out your story, just like saying you're going to do the thing you say you're going to do. It's a practice. It's muscles. It's trainable. You can work on it. I can't say I'm an expert at it. I suck at it. There are so many times I fall down a hole and lose myself to it, but it's super doable. Just practice it. Before we get out of here, any other last minute questions? Yes, no. All right, let's go to that musicless outro. That's the intro, John. That's the outro button. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for checking this out. I really appreciate it. Uh, The next time I'm here, in your eyes and in your ears, in fact, will be later this week. Will be uh, Thursday, the 18th. I will be right back here for. Uh, a nice discussion of Every Sentence is a Camera, the ongoing series that looks at how we compose language to put ideas in the reader's head. It's going to be a really good one because we're going to talk about people's actual writing and show you how to take things apart and understand it. It gets a little crunchy. I think you're going to like it. Uh, Until then, take care of yourself. Stay warm. Be good to yourself. Make an effort not to compare yourself so goddamn much. You're doing okay. Give that some thought. Really, like, sit with it. Feel it. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you liked it. I certainly did. Thanks for hanging out with me during technical issues. I appreciate it. And I will talk to you soon. Very soon. In fact, this will be up on YouTube later today-ish. It'll be out as a podcast shortly. So 
Thanks so much. And I'll see you later.